You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. We continue to follow breaking news in Vancouver. Anti-pipeline protesters stopping traffic in all directions at Broadway and Canby, occupying the intersection there for several hours now. Good evening. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll have much more on the protest at the legislature in just a moment, but we begin with frustrated commuters in Vancouver. And it's traffic mayhem at Broadway and Canby right now. That is where we find uh, Ramina Dea. Ramina, a couple of hundred or so protesters are there blocking that intersection and it's having a widespread impact. Sophie, traffic is just at a standstill for several blocks. This started at around 2 o'clock this afternoon. We're starting to see a trend here. I think this is going to become the new normal in Vancouver. Same thing happened last week. You started to see the protests starting to emerge around 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, right when that rush hour traffic is starting. So it started off with about 150 people here at Camby and Broadway. The crowd has now swelled to about five. 500 people here right now. At 5 o'clock, the, the, the traffic on the bridge, on the Canby Bridge, was at a standstill. I don't think anybody's moved from there. You can see the rows and rows of headlights. The intersections are blocked all the way. Uh, so down Canby, north and south, um, down to about 8th Avenue and heading south to about 12th Avenue. And we have no idea how long that's going to continue for. Um, buses also chaotic for, for people trying to get home. We talked to one individual who told me that uh, he was delayed for three hours. He was trying to get to the hospital for an appointment. So major, major disruption for people trying to get home. As far as what's been happening here, though, police are telling me that it's been peaceful. Um, They are here to ensure public safety for everyone. So it's for the protesters and for the public that's trying to get home tonight. Now, this is a major artery, I have to point out, this intersection here at Broadway and Canby for ambulances. Police are telling me just a few moments ago that this protest has had a massive effect on ambulances being able to get into VGH and being able to leave from there. So police are concerned about that. They've actually um, taken the motorcycles that were helping with rerouting traffic, and they've used those police motorcycles now to provide an escort for ambulances trying to get to VGH. So at this point, try to avoid this area for anybody getting home tonight. Mm-hmm. We, have no lo- we have no idea at this point how long it's going to last, Sophie. Yeah, we just see a, a tent being set up in the background behind you, Ramina, so it could be a while longer. Thanks for that. Also an intense day at the B.C. legislature where anti-pipeline protests had emotions running high. Heightened security, including a police escort needed for some MLAs trying to get in for the throne speech. It's been an unprecedented day of protest in Victoria. As you just saw, a gauntlet of angry demonstrators blocked entrances to the legislature trying to disrupt or prevent the throne speech today. Our Richard Zussman is covering that protest today. And Richard, it's much quieter now, but take us through how all of that unfolded today. It is, Chris. About 100 protesters still there. They're getting ready to stay overnight once again, as they have since Thursday. But clearly a much different scene earlier. Unprecedented, as you mentioned it, protests here at the legislature. 
showdown at the legislature. We gotta keep our hearts and minds calm. We do, we are not violent. Demonstrators and protesters blocking the door of the BC legislature, trying to stop staff, journalists and MLAs, including Agriculture Minister Lana Popham, from entering the building. Many of the protesters saying they are here to defend Wet'suwet'en territory and are standing in solidarity with the hereditary chiefs opposed to the coastal gaslink pipeline. We're going to shut down Canada and show them that this is the way, this is the right way. To, you know, we're on, we're on the right side of, of history. The demonstrations hitting their peak just before the province's speech from the throne. Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin eventually making her way into the building, out of sight of the protesters. Uh, when protests happen, that they are peaceful, uh, that uh, they respect uh, the people who work in these, in, the, in these buildings. Many MLAs were eventually able to get into the building. The majority of the interactions respectful. Victoria Police called in to manage the crowds and get people in. No one was arrested. But some staff complained they were spat on and pushed back from getting into the building. And if uh, individuals are found to have engaged in violence or to have hurt people, then I expect them to be fully uh, face the consequences of the law. Green Party interim leader Adam Olson says it's devastating what unfolded, but won't use his frustration with the government's support of the LNG project as a reason to vote them down. This project uh, that we voted against 14 times, we were very clear that this was a potential outcome of it, and I think that the decision that's been made has been made. The core organizers of this encampment that has been in front of the legislature since Thursday vow they're not going anywhere potentially setting up days of confrontations between those trying to get inside the legislature and those standing in the way. You know, we all have our duty to stand up for one another because we recognize that what is happening to the Wet'suwet'en, this government is willing to do to our peoples. Premier John Horgan was supposed to have a press conference today to talk about the throne speech. Instead, it was cancelled and he set out a press release. Let me read to you very quickly a part of that statement. British Columbians have the right to peaceful protest. We support people in the exercise of their democratic rights within the law. That said, I understand the frustration of people who have been unable to go to work today, who have been unable to enter government buildings, who have been unable to get around in their communities. And Chris, this may not be the end of all this, considering that these protesters are hunkering down and we could see this yet again tomorrow, if not even more throughout the week. And I know you'll be there to cover it. Thanks very much, Richard Zussman in Victoria tonight. Now, at the center of this pipeline fight is who speaks for the Wet'suwet'en. 20 elected band councils have signed agreements with Coastal GasLink, counting on that project to provide jobs. On the other side are the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs and their supporters. And as Sarah McDonald reports, their disagreement is fracturing the community, even families. The catalyst for those protests, galvanizing demonstrators in major cities across the country, has left a nation divided in northern BC. With the natural gas pipeline, some are determined to stop at all costs. Is offering a financial lifeline to the indigenous communities it's slated to run through, promising funding and jobs to people like Philip Tate. Right now, this is uh, probably got one of the biggest jobs creations in the province here. And uh, we want to be part of it. The hereditary chief's office 
they don't speak for the whole clan. Tate is not alone in his stance, which is at odds with the hereditary chiefs of Wet'suwet'en Nation, though voices in support of the deeply divisive, lucrative project and the injunction paving the way for work on it to resume here are seldom heard as loudly. reason why it's not out there because people are afraid. People are afraid to speak up, but that's starting to change. The livelihoods of many people in this region also depend on that injunction remaining impactful and the road to their work site remaining clear of obstructions. With work expected to resume this week, the question is how long it will stay that way. Because others who also have jurisdiction over this unceded territory and their supporters are willing to risk arrest by blocking construction. This long-brewing battle pitting the people here against each other, dividing longtime friends and families. There you have a, a company with a profit motive coming into a community and dividing it right down the middle. I've not heard anybody who said, I love this pipeline, I'm so happy it's going ahead. What people have said is, I want the job. Tate falls in that category, now without a paycheck for two months and eager to get back to work, while watching those demonstrators working to stop that. You guys might be working, you guys might have a job, but there's a whole bunch of us in all these communities that don't have jobs. What they do have is the eyes of the country on them, as this nation works through a highly personal and polarizing divide that's evolved into a national protest. Sarah McDonald, Global News, Smithers, B.C. Now, despite all the drama outside, inside the legislature today, the lieutenant governor delivered that throne speech without any disruptions. The speech focused largely on the government's accomplishments since taking power, but it also includes a handful of new promises. Keith Baldry has the highlights. Despite the mayhem outside, Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin somehow made it into the legislature to actually read the throne speech today. In keeping with tradition, it began with a look back at what the NDP government considers to be some of its key accomplishments. In the first 100 days, government raised the minimum wage, removed unfair bridge tolls, lifted income assistance and disability rates, and reduced in interest on student loans. The speech's broad themes were issues tied to affordability, such as housing and childcare, and issues such as transportation and climate change. There were some relatively minor announcements, such as a plan to work with Ottawa for more affordable cell phone plans, more police tools to ban illegal guns and guns in schools and hospitals, up to five days of paid leave for workers fleeing domestic violence, higher earning exemptions for those on disability or income assistance, expanded funding for youth with mental health issues, a new plastics action plan, and a five-year transportation plan instead of the current three-year one. <laughs> Ironically, given the events outside, part of the speech touched on Indigenous rights. For two and a half years, this government has worked in partnership with Indigenous peoples to make progress on reconciliation. The speech ended with a summary of those key themes and one more mention of an issue that dominated events here today. All Indigenous peoples are full partners in shaping our province's future. A province full of people who are skilled, confident and ready for the road ahead. A place of hope and opportunity. A stronger province for everyone. All right, Keith joins us live in Victoria now. You've been at the legislature a long time, Keith. How does what happened today compare to past protests? 
Yeah, Chris mentioned, used the word unprecedented off the top. I think that's uh, very true. The only thing it compares with was a protest, ironically, also on throne speech in the early 1990s, when environmental protesters, you remember the War of the Woods, uh, broke through the, the front door of the legislature while the Lieutenant Governor of the day, David Lamb, was reading the throne speech, and they actually made it as far as the legislature door and broke the stained glass window while the speech was being read. That was pretty dramatic. But today was unprecedented in that it basically closed the legislature for so many people. I've never seen a group be able to block every single entrance. This was very well planned, very well carried off, and who knows if they're going to show up again tomorrow. All right, we'll see how it all unfolds, Keith. Thank you. A salmon R man has been found guilty in an August 2017 attack on a sex trade worker. Curtis Sagmoen had earlier pleaded not guilty to assault causing bodily harm. But in court today, Crown and defense agreed. The 39-year-old drove his quad into an escort he had called to his rural North Okanagan property, leaving her with minor injuries. A sentencing date will be scheduled in March. Sentencing has been pushed back for the Vancouver Island woman who hit an 11-year-old girl with her car, leaving the girl with catastrophic injuries. The crash happened in a Saanich crosswalk back in December 2017. Leila Bowie was hit by an SUV driven by Tanessa Nykirk, suffering massive injuries. She is now confined to a wheelchair. She's tube-fed and will require constant care for the rest of her life. Last month, Nykirk was convicted of dangerous driving, causing bodily harm. The guilty verdict automatically breaches her insurance coverage, meaning Nykirk will be responsible for helping pay for the little girl's medical care. Injury lawyers are warning tonight that the proposed no-fault style insurance at ICBC could lead to cyclists rethinking their daily commute. Under the new system, the injured party will lose the right to sue for damages, something advocates warn could discourage people from riding. Aaron MacArthur reports. Cycling. Supposed to be good for the planet, good for beating traffic congestion, but not so good for your wallet especially after ICBC launches no-fault insurance. One lawyer who advocates for cyclists hurt in car crashes says no-fault will limit payouts and shift risks from drivers to the most vulnerable road user groups. This is a major shift of risk from at-fault drivers to the shoulders of cyclists, pedestrians, people who ride motorcycles. ICBC needs to be accountable to you. ICBC really hammering home the idea of no-fault insurance, commercials touting the benefits. But injury claims from cyclists involved in crashes with drivers often lead to catastrophic injuries. Cyclists need to be incentivized at every turn, and it's not by making it more difficult or more risky. It's by making it easier and safer to ride at every opportunity, and this is the opposite. ICBC says in addition to saving drivers money, no-fault insurance will also increase the benefits paid to accident victims. And that includes vulnerable road users like cyclists and pedestrians. The challenge that uh, cyclists and pedestrians have right now is it's very dependent on the amount of insurance carried by the person who hits them. While the government has estimates of what some of those benefits will look like, including a maximum total benefit of $7.5 million and weekly payouts that could be as much as $1,200, Zanata wonders what incentive ICBC will have to actually pay that amount. So sure, they put this massive limit on, but do you think you'll ever see that limit? Do you think anyone's going to to be voluntarily um, paying for that care if, if they either disagree or they don't accept that you're as badly hurt as you are? No fault insurance 
expected to be up and running in BC by May of 2021. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Right now, though, for many people, it's a frustrating Vancouver experience. The city's bike lanes plowed soon after a snowfall, while the adjacent sidewalks remain covered. Now, one Vancouver city councillor is looking at making changes to the city's snow removal protocol to make life easier for pedestrians, too. Nadia Stewart reports. NPA councillor Sarah Kirby-Young introduced this notice of motion. She said she's received complaints from residents who say snow-covered sidewalks are dangerous and in some cases unusable. Meanwhile, the city's 15 bike routes are included in the city's snow-clearing plan, along with priority routes and main arteries. The councillor pointing out pedestrian walkways are a glaring omission from the city's plan. The motion calls on city staff to review the current plan with an eye to seeing what changes can be made so pedestrians are prioritized. I know that we have a number of folks that are coming out support. I've heard from a lot of people that say, yes, um, we should have pedestrians in there. Um, City of Vancouver declared a climate emergency. One of the core goals was walkable communities. And if we put pedestrians at the top of the transportation hierarchy and they're number one, then my question is, why aren't they in the snow response protocol? In an email, the City of Vancouver says pedestrian paths along bridges are cleared both mechanically and manually by bridge crew staff, generally within 48 hours. The city says it intends to move towards greater mechanical removal in the near future with some equipment up for replacement this year. Pedestrian paths adjacent to priority bike routes, such as the Arbutus Greenway and the Seawall, are prioritized ahead of the bike path, they say. The city received about 450 requests via 311 in 2018 and 2019 to clear a bridge, sidewalk, bike lane or a street. They say this year, so far, they received 550 requests. The discussion surrounding snow clearing will come up again in Wednesday's committee meeting. Nadia Stork, Global News. The number of people killed worldwide from the coronavirus has now topped 1,000. But here in B.C., our provincial health officer says there are no new cases and the four people infected are recovering at home. As Catherine Urquhart reports tonight, the virus now has a new name. It's officially known as COVID-19. At Vancouver International Airport, the second Canadian government evacuation flight from Wuhan, China, touches down. On board are 130 Canadians and 58 family members. After refueling, the plane continues to CFB Trenton, where evacuees will be quarantined for two weeks. Thank you then, bye now. Those on the first flight say they're learning to manage their isolation and environment, which includes people in hazmat suits. Vancouverite Joanna Wu is documenting her experience on YouTube. I actually went out yesterday to try to test the two-meter rule. I walked around yesterday and it seemed like that wasn't very strict, like you could stand next to someone. In China, there are now in excess of 42,000 confirmed cases of the coronavirus, now named COVID-19. We had to find a name that did not refer to a geographical location, an animal, an, an individual or group of people. More than a thousand people have died from the illness caused by COVID-19. Outside China, there are about 400 cases in 24 countries. In B.C., it's status quo, with four confirmed cases. 
BC's provincial health officer is dismissing concerns about a potentially longer incubation period. For the vast majority of people, we, we, you know, the incubation period up to 14 days is holding true. In Yokohama, Japan, a Princess cruise ship remains in quarantine after a passenger who disembarked was diagnosed with the virus. To date, 135 passengers have been infected, including eight Canadians. White Rock resident Nigel Cole and his husband are among those trapped on board. Yeah, we check our temperatures three times a day. We're right on and uh, yeah, we're physically fine. While only a handful of COVID-19 cases have been confirmed here, there's already a financial impact being felt. Owners of some Chinese restaurants in Metro Vancouver are reporting that business is down as much as 90%. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Accusations tonight that at least one Canadian airline is playing fast and loose with new rules that are supposed to protect travelers. The rules governing flight delays and disruptions came into effect in December. And as Global's Sean O'Shea reports, Air Canada is now accused of routinely and unfairly refusing to pay customers' claims for compensation. Pushback. Carla DeCenzo is talking about her recent fight for compensation from Air Canada after a January flight from Prince George to Ottawa through Vancouver was cancelled because of circumstances that were clearly under the airline's control. And I was advised that um, there wasn't enough crew to fly the plane. DiCenzo and her family got home a day late and filed a claim with Air Canada under the new Air Passenger Protection Regulations, known as APPR. My daughter and I received our responses from Air Canada the following day and we were denied. Air Canada said her family didn't qualify, but the denial made reference to other flights, not the cancelled one. You may not actually catch that they're actually speaking to a flight that isn't even the one you're complaining about. Do airlines comply with the rules that we have? And the answer is also no. Global News has seen at least 10 cases involving Air Canada flights. Quick denials with the effect of putting an end to a claim. I think that is probably the strategy. Air Canada told us by email its policy is to fully abide by the APPR and has put in place the necessary processes and procedures to ensure compliance. We asked the Transportation Minister, Mark Garneau, about Air Canada's actions. It's understandable that in some cases there will be a different interpretation. The Canadian Transportation Agency, which is supposed to enforce the law, told Global News it's received a total of 9,757 air travel complaints. An unprecedented volume, it says. What we are seeing here is the government's legislation falling apart. Lukash says Canadian rules are weak compared to European passenger standards. He says the government and the minister are at fault. He has, for the past two and a half years, been lying to the public about what is in the legislation. And you're denying very legitimate claims for compensation in order to feed your bottom line. Dicenzo's husband got paid for the flight delay. She and her daughter are still waiting. I think absolutely that this is a systemic approach, planned approach, to deny or delay. Sean O'Shea, Global News, Toronto. Seafoam covering beaches and reverse waterfalls as torrential rain and high winds hit parts of Australia. The heaviest rain in 30 years might be helping put out many of the devastating wildfires, but flash flooding is forcing evacuations as water submerges cars and swamps the roads. More rain is in the forecast for the rest of the week. The polls are closed in New Hampshire in the first full presidential primary, and among the Democrats, the front runners are where they were expected to be. It's still too early to call, 
But Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders is out in front with former Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg and Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar in second and third. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren and former Vice President Joe Biden are a distant fourth and fifth. The defense rested its case today in Harvey Weinstein's rape trial in New York without Weinstein testifying in his own defense. What are you thinking about testifying? You didn't have to. You didn't have to. You wanted to testify. He didn't have to. He didn't have to. The case spoke for itself. Well, that sets the stage for closing arguments in the landmark trial of the disgraced Hollywood mogul. The defense relied on witnesses who cast doubt on the accounts of two women who say they were raped and assaulted by Weinstein. For his part, Weinstein claims the contact was consensual. Jurors are expected to hear defense closing arguments Thursday, followed by the prosecution on Friday. A dismal start to the year for Boeing, still dealing with a fallout from the grounding of its 737 MAX jet. Boeing recorded no orders for new planes in January. That follows a negative order rate in 2019 where customers canceled orders. Boeing's lack of orders in January stands in stark contrast to its competitor Airbus, which logged orders for 274 commercial planes in that month. Well, after months of historic flooding, Venice is finally set to begin testing its extensive flood control system. Beleaguered residents have been waiting for the completion of the protection dike, which is due to finally be in operation next year. The plan calls for 78 huge underwater doors to elevate during high tides. The doors lie 12 meters below the water level in a giant underwater chamber. Workers are making the last electrical connections and will then carry out the first tests. Construction began in 2003, but the project has been delayed by corruption and bureaucracy. In Health Matters tonight, another red flag raised about those ever-popular dating apps. A Canadian researcher has found a connection between too much swiping and mental health problems. Right, right. Dating apps can help you find love, something casual, or a little validation. But a University of Saskatchewan researcher says you'll also run into rejection. Lots of it. You can open up a dating app and there are hundreds of potential matches. And therefore, you're experiencing rejection or not being matched with someone at sort of an unprecedented rate. You can feel like you're maybe not a very attractive person or that you don't have much to offer. So you can really internalize that mass level of rejection. That can take a serious toll on a person's mental health. Sparks surveyed hundreds of University of Saskatchewan students about their experiences on dating apps like Bumble, Hinge, and Tinder. He found links to depression and anxiety and says people's self-esteem might take a hit when they see others cleaning up online while they struggle to find a match. Their perception of how they're doing against their competition essentially is related to both depression and dating related anxiety. So those who think they're doing worse than their peers demonstrate higher levels of depression. One therapist says meaningful connection is crucial for young adults, a demographic where online dating is the norm. We understand ourselves through the eyes of the people around us. Right? And so what if that eye is a device, mostly, and we're being kind of swiped back and forth? So it's just how we build our identity. She says some people feel dating apps put their private life in the public sphere, while others struggle with feeling objectified. Being on an app that's judging them purely like from a physical or kind of superficial um, 
understanding is it could be very hard on someone's sense of self. She says people can be mindful of their mental health and recommend setting boundaries and limiting time spent swiping. Anna McMillan, Global News. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Prince William having a spot of bother, <laughs> trying to sink baskets from a wheelchair during a royal visit. After the forecast, the surprising coach who steps forward to give him a hand. That's coming up. His wife? We Just have to wait. wait. You have to wait. <laughs> Uh, that was a guess. That wasn't, <laughs> no. it wa wasn't the best guess, but it was a good guess. It was a guess, yes. That's right. <laughs> Christy Gordon shows us with a look at the forecast. Mm -hmm. That is a beautiful shot. Yeah, so a little bit of cloud covered today, but still a stunning shot of the sunrise looking out over White Rock. Thank you to Norman Orr for that one. And we did catch a glimpse of a rainbow in Brentwood Bay. Thank you to Tracy Donald for that. So we did see some breaks in the clouds here and there, although it was generally overcast. The good news is, is that it was dry. That's the key that we wanted. So that makes us Third day of dry weather. So that's the longest streak of dry weather that we've had since November, everyone. Yes, and we're hoping for one more day of dry weather. But tomorrow morning, the cloud will rethicken, and there is a chance that some areas could see a bit of drizzle. It's less likely at the airport, but we'll be watching that. But certainly, we're hoping for a dry day with breaks of blue sky towards the afternoon hours. So you shouldn't need to send the kids to school with a rain jacket, but you will on Thursday. This system here tracking into the north coast by the afternoon hours and pushing down into our region by Thursday. So tomorrow dry with those breaks of blue sky, but certainly wet on Thursday. There's the wet weather for the north coast tomorrow though, whereas most inland regions, sunshine. The cloud cover that you see in through the south will be mainly in the morning, so I'm expecting more blue sky by the afternoon hours. And again, that's the case for us also with breaks of blue sky and temperatures near seasonal for this time of year, but wet weather certainly pushing in once again Thursday, a little bit drier on Friday and wet again yet uh, yet again on Saturday. So it's one thing after another. So enjoy a bit of blue sky tomorrow. And look at this, snow art in Quinell. Thank you to Manfred for that terrific shot. That's just on top of his greenhouse. Wow. Oh, cool. Like yeah. That. Thanks, cool. Christy. Okay, Prince William has played a lot more rugby than basketball, and that seemed a little bit obvious during a royal visit to a rehab center for members of the British military. <laughs> William having a bit of trouble sinking a basket from a wheelchair. While most people were inclined to watch and hope he'd make a shot, one person decided to step in. None other than his father, Prince Charles. After moving his son closer to the net and giving him a little pep talk, fatherly advice, on the very next shot, success. <laughs> little encouragement from dad, coach dad. Good stuff. In his defense, it is not easy to hit a I shot will. from a from a, from a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. No, I'll be here. <laughs> we'll be working when big things happen. At yeah, they put the numbers up tomorrow night, 22 and 33. They changed the banners last night. They're all different colors now. Mm -hmm. I thought that was cool. Uh, okay, so after that win over Nashville last night, the Vancouver Canucks' chances of making the playoffs at this moment are 92%. Actually, I can be more accurate than that. 92.3. And you would have to think the fact that Edmonton's Connor McDavid is now out of action two to three weeks with a quad injury helps the Canucks situation as well. I know Vancouver's missing Brock Besser, 
But no Brock Besser is nothing compared to no McDavid for the Oilers. Tomorrow, the Canucks, of course, will be honoring, as we mentioned, the Sedins by retiring 22 and 33. Uh, let's go to Minnesota. The Canucks would love to see the Wild win this game. The Wild get very unlucky here. How did this puck not fully cross the line? It doesn't. Braden McNabb gets it out in the nick of time. Uh, there you go. All right. They would score, though. Actually, numerous times. Uh, Jared Spurgeon. This is one of four Minnesota has scored in this game. So that's good news for the Canucks. 4 nothing, wild in the second period. Toronto Maple Leafs are home to the Arizona Coyotes. The Canucks hoping for a Leafs win. Not very often a Vancouverite cheers for Toronto. Unless they're one of those Vancouverites who show up when the Leafs come to town with their Leafs jerseys on. Christian Dvorak with the goal there to make it 1-0. It's 2-1 Arizona, but nice pass by John Tavares and Zach Hyman. They're in overtime, and it's 2-2, so the Coyotes are at least getting one point. Well, at the risk of sounding like I'm belittling the other players, and I'm not, but Canada's success in women's soccer would not have happened without Christine Sinclair. Her goal-scoring prowess would be kind of like Cristiano Ronaldo playing for Canada's men's team. The difference a player like that can make is huge. And we all know that Burnaby Christine is the all-time leading scorer in international soccer history. And with the Olympics coming up in Tokyo, don't even ask her about retirement. Claire wide open. Is this it? It is! Sinclair has done it! The Queen of the North! I know you've never been about yourself, but we're talking about a monumental... I, I, to be honest, I, I haven't been able to like sit back and think about it, just because of the nature of how it happened in the tournament that it happened in, being a qualification tournament. I mean, we had some celebrating that night, but immediately it was like next game because we had an Olympics to qualify for. So now, a little bit of a break, so maybe I'll, I'll think about it. It's 186 goals and counting for Christine Sinclair. And when it comes to representing one's country, no footballer, male or female, can match Christine's impressive goal total. This from the world's greatest international goal scorer who learned the value of finding the back of the old onion bag at a very early age. My first year, our team scored two goals and we didn't win any games, but after that, I started putting the ball in the net. Did the coaches start to see some kind of a natural ability from you? Uh, I think so. Like my coach when I was four, when I talked to him just this last year, he's like, oh, I knew you'd be a star. <laughs> a superstar, in fact, but a reluctant one. For 20 years, the spotlight has been on the Burnaby native, yet she's always put country and teammates front and center. Christine's played in three Olympics for Canada, winning back-to-back -back bronze medals, and will be 37 this summer when our Canadian women's team go for another medal in her fourth Olympic Games. Can you think about how much longer you can go? Have you thought about it? Uh, no, not really. Um, I've sort of had my goal set on Tokyo and then sort of reassess life after that. Um, but yeah, as long as I still have the love and passion and I'm healthy and Kenneth wants me around, I'll be around. So, But I think, yeah, just focus on this summer right now and then we'll see what happens. Ed Hervey and the BC Lions went shopping for defense on the first day of CFL free agency. The biggest signing was defensive lineman Micah Johnson as the Lions tried to get a pass rush. They didn't get many quarterback sacks last season. The only offensive player was one we know pretty well, 
Chris Rainey back after spending last year with the Argos. Before that, he was a BC Lion for four seasons. And during that time, he returned four punts for touchdowns, two kickoffs for touchdowns. He can also play running back in a pinch and did so at times during his first stint with the Lion. And the good news is he's still fast. Ten years ago, people were running across Metro Vancouver from West Vancouver to Vancouver with the Olympic torch. It was really quite exciting. Now, you had it, but you had it on the first day, right? I did, yeah. I ran in Saanich and was quite amazed. It was 15 degrees, and I had to wear the toque and the mittens and everything. But, uh, and run yeah. at the same time. And run at the same time. Well, it did go as far north as alert, so That's if you had gone up there, your, your attire right. would have been great. Proper Appropriate attire. clothing, yeah. Anyway, the, uh, the torch relay was 106 days, and it worked out brilliantly. Really, the torch relay, when you look back at the ancient Greeks... The relay was about notifying people and inviting them to come to Olympia. And that is the idea that sent the Olympic flame on a 45,000 kilometer odyssey to bring Canadians together for the Winter Games. We were 106 days on the road, longest torch relay ever, but it needed to be because we had so much ground to cover. There was over 12,000, 12,000 torch bears. It ran the gamut, ordinary folks and celebrities, even Arnold Schwarzenegger in Stanley Park. But Canadian celebrities like Sidney Crosby had a deeper bond to the relay. Like he personally chartered a plane to fly to between games in Pittsburgh to personally be there um, for the torch relay. It meant so much to him. It also meant a lot to the torch team that the flame that traveled across the country was the one they got from Greece evenly split into six lanterns that were never allowed to go out. So these lanterns were maintained like babies. The wicks were changed, they were clean, they were oiled, they were fueled. Um, every day they would go through and make sure that they were attended to and every night they were carried into a hotel room and they were burning. The torch itself was designed by Bombardier, made to handle all weather conditions. And these torches weren't from an assembly line. They were also special. Every torch was assembled by hand, and we'd have the person's name who assembled these torches. And one of the funny things is one of the employees at Bombardier was named Celine Dion. And so we had torches assembled by Celine Dion. <laughs> <laughs> the torch's final journey was kept secret until the very end. Wayne Gretzky in a pickup truck with Jim driving. No one knew these plans. And we're driving down empty streets. But that only lasted about 30 seconds. Because everybody who was in the bars watching opening ceremonies quickly realized, that's Gretzky. They're on the road right in front of us. And they came streaming out. But as was the case all across the country, that night the flame got to where it needed to be, in the hearts of all Canadians. It's really interesting to see how what we were able to put together um, mattered deeply to people. To be representatives of their community or their school or whatever it was. It, it was just, it was, uh, it was spectacular, day after day. Almost wow. like winning a medal. There was a huge team of those people and you know, they, they had two ceremonies per day wherever they were stopping 
And of course, you had 12,000 people plus, I think, carrying torches. But they also had to have advanced teams that would go out ahead and make mm -hmm. sure ahead was fine and everything was good. And apparently, the uh, one of the guys from Coca-Cola, because they were a sponsor, was in Churchill, Manitoba, but he couldn't carry it right away because there was a polar bear in the area. Yeah. So yeah. they had things like that to deal with, you know. And, and tomorrow, a really cool story. Rick Hansen, you'll remember, brought the torch into BC Place for the opening ceremonies. And there's a really cool story about the secret audition he had to do to prove that he was capable of doing it. That's tomorrow. Thanks for watching. Cool. Good night, all.